Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Luke chapter 24, please? We've read this passage already in this series. But it's a key to the point we want to get across regarding not finding ourselves in the same boat as those who should know better but don't, especially as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage again, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are privilege to be here, Lord, to be able to open your word, to be able to hear what you have said, especially concerning your son. I pray this morning, Father, as we look into your word and what you've said about him, that our hearts would be drawn to you, that our hearts would be encouraged. Lord, if there's ways in which we are foolish or slow of heart to believe, that you, Lord, through your Spirit, would bring about a change. Lord, may we know you more. May we love you more. We thank you for your Son. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been in a three-part series leading up to 
Easter Sunday called Have You Not Read, which are the words of a question that Jesus frequently asked the religious leaders of his time. And by asking this question, Jesus was essentially publicly shaming them. This was a humiliating question. He was exposing their hypocrisy and lack of true knowledge and understanding, though they were the ones who were supposed to be in the know. They often wanted to kill Jesus even more after he asked this question and and made his points from the Scriptures. Had they read? Of course, they had, which was the sad point that Jesus was making. You've read it, but you don't get it. Why didn't they get it? Because they didn't believe in the first place. They were motivated by selfish ambition, pride, the praise of men, stature in their community. They had hard, self-centered hearts that were blind to the truth. The question Jesus asked always came after the religious leaders asked him a question. He was good at asking questions when people asked him questions. Um, And they should have known the answer to it, but they didn't. And Jesus did what he did to prove they had no understanding. They could claim knowledge before men, but before God they were exposed as frauds. And Jesus, on one occasion, said, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus knew they had read. They knew they had read, but they didn't know the Scriptures. They didn't know the power of God. And when the Word became flesh, they would not receive Him. They were blind, and in their blindness, they hardened their hearts to the Messiah they had been waiting for. In their blindness, they would put to death the Son of God as a blasphemer and set His cross between two common criminals. Of course they had read. They had read, but they did not believe because their hearts were uncut or unconverted, unchanged by the truth. The first of the Christian martyrs, Stephen, said of these who killed Christ, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And to that, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. So how does this relate to you and me? Why should we care about the failures of the religious leaders and regular folk in Jesus' time who had read but didn't understand? We should care because it's a warning to us as well. Not just a warning, but an invitation to read and understand. To read and believe all that has been written concerning Jesus Christ. We don't want to find ourselves in the place of the disciples on the road to Emmaus who were followers of Christ, but were shaken by what had happened to Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't understand because they read the situation wrong. They read it without knowledge. No different than you and me at times when we mistakenly think everything that is bad in our lives is somehow outside of God's plans. These men thought what took place in the lead-up to and the and ultimately in the death of Christ, somehow meant everything was wrong. 
the reality was things went horribly right. God's horribly wonderful plan for the birth, sinless life, death, and resurrection of Christ went exactly the way he laid it out. Not one detail in the life of Christ occurred without God's specific planning. We should care because we want to understand what happened with Jesus and why. We want to understand how God orchestrated all the events around his death in order to bring his death about according to his plan. We want to understand that all of Scripture is about Christ and we can know it and understand it by the grace of God. Men didn't take Christ's life. He laid it down and he had the power to take it up again. This was God's plan. And the guys on the road to Emmaus should have known. So Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And let's you and I not be foolish and slow of heart to believe. Let's recognize all the things concerning Jesus in all the scriptures. And over the last two weeks, Pastor Brandon has taken us through some of what is written about Christ in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. We, we saw what was written of Christ as the promised seed, as the lion of Judah, as the prophet like Moses. And last week, um, he showed us some of what was written of Christ in the prophets, which take up a major portion of the Old Testament scriptures. And we looked at what was written of Christ as the rejected cornerstone, as the suffering servant, and as the shepherd of Israel. And today I've been assigned to preach on what was written of Christ in the Psalms. Not all of it, because we'd be here for a really long time. Um, But we'll look at a couple of different aspects of the life of Christ written about in the Old Testament. Like what was written of Christ in Moses and the prophets, we can find the connections between Old Testament writings and New Testament writings to help remind us that all the scriptures are ultimately about Christ. All the scriptures are important to us as Christians. There are two points about the life of Christ leading up to his death, and even moving beyond it, that I wanted to look at this morning. And I wanted to look at these because I think they're central to the struggles of the disciples, as well as things people can get confused today. Not that we don't know about these things, but we need to be reassured that they are in Scripture and that they were always part of God's plan, just like people needed to have done for them back in Jesus' day. As Jesus asked the question, have you not read? I want to ask of us the same question. As we approach our Easter Sunday celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, We want to tune our ears and our hearts and our minds to some of the realities surrounding his life and his death. We don't want to find ourselves in the shoes of the men on the road to Emmaus who knew all about the comings and goings of Jesus of Nazareth, his life and his death, and now the news of resurrection, and yet we're dumbfounded and confused by the outcome. Why don't we want to be found in their shoes Because they should have known. 
because Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And you and I have the fullness of the word of God in the pages of Scripture in our hands. And most of us have multiple copies. We have the word of God at our fingertips with our electronic devices. We're not completely reliant upon someone else telling us what it says. We even have more reason to be held accountable for not knowing or believing what the Scriptures have revealed about Christ. I want to look at two points of confusion today about the life of Christ that we see written about in the Psalms. In fact, these truths about Christ are written, they're written about all over the Scriptures, but my assignment is the Psalms. And these were points completely missed by and or participated in by the Pharisees due to their stony, unbelieving hearts. So Jesus asked, have you not read? But more importantly to our topic for today, they were points of confusion for the followers of Christ. How would things have been different for the guys on the road to Emmaus if they had understood what was written about Christ in the Psalms? I believe had they understood these truths about Christ in the Psalms, they would not have been so sad. So the first point for today is confusion about the betrayal. Confusion about the betrayal. Again, as we approach Easter Sunday, where we focus on the resurrection of Christ, we would not be able to do so without what was written of him in the Psalms regarding his betrayal. Without the betrayal, he would not have been arrested. He would not have been tried. He would not have been crucified. He would not have been buried. And he would not have been resurrected. Like those followers in Jesus' time, we look at the betrayal of Christ and think, It was a vile and terrible thing, and it was. But that terrible thing was also part of God's perfect plan. It was an evil that God used to ultimately bring about our redemption. When we know that it was spoken of in the Psalms and other places, we can also know that it had to happen. We can know that it was by design and and stop fretting about it and and thinking wrongly about it. This event was not proof of Jesus' failure to save his people, but the success of it. In John 13, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and talking about the need for them to be cleansed. He said they were all clean, but one of them. The Apostle John clarifies what Jesus meant in John 13, 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus brings up the subject of his betrayal at the foot washing, and a few verses later, he narrows the list down to one and makes it clear that it has already been written about. No need to panic. This is literally old news. Jesus makes some comments about his disciples being blessed, and then he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. John 13, 18. Jesus is making the point that prophecy written about in the scriptures was going to be fulfilled when one of his closest friends would betray him. Where where do these words come from? Jesus was quoting from 
the Psalms, a passage David wrote regarding his own life, but his words are now proven to be prophetic. The Holy Spirit intended them to find their true fulfillment in the life and the betrayal of Christ. How do we know this? Because that's what Jesus meant when he just said, but the Scripture will be fulfilled in regard to his betrayal. What Scripture? The one written about him in the Psalms that says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Where was that written of him in the Psalms? Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Like kicking someone when they're down. This is interesting because Jesus is trying to prepare them for what is coming by showing them from the Old Testament that it was part of God's plan for him. He didn't want them to think it was an unexpected snag in what was an otherwise great plan. It wasn't a snag. Jesus wanted them to know this. John 13, 19, he said, I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He's saying, guys, it's written in the Psalms concerning me. This has to take place because it is the very event that will prove to you that I am he. I am the one. This is where the doubt was in the men walking to Emmaus. What were their words after telling the man walking with them, who was actually Jesus, all that had happened? They were sad. And they said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. He is the one. They were not prepared with knowledge of the scriptures. They were shaken by the events. They didn't know what to think. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. One more part I want to look at about the prophecy concerning the Lord's betrayer that is also written about in the Psalms and fulfilled in Jesus' life through Judas Iscariot. Psalm 109, verses 6 through 8. Is appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. And these are curses David is pronouncing on his enemies. And, and there are several phrases in those verses that are clearly fulfilled in Judas' betrayal of Jesus. God appointed Judas as the wicked man against Christ. Jesus chose all 12 of his disciples. And he knew one of them would betray him. And not just one of them, he knew which one. He, in fact, said to them, after saying he chose all of them, he says, one of you is a devil. And Judas was the son of destruction who did what he did and was lost so that what was written concerning Christ would be fulfilled. John 17, 12, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he's praying to the Father and he says, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction 
that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And the Hebrew word for accuser is where we get the word Satan. Judas is the wicked man, and the curse against him is the accuser standing at his right hand. He's in league with the devil. They are partners. And Luke 22 Verses 3 and 4 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas felt guilty later, but he didn't repent. His days were few because he killed himself. And another did take his office because the apostles appointed Matthias in his place. All these fulfilled in Judas. We can see the New Testament proof of this and the fact that the apostle Peter flat out says this was written about the betrayer of Jesus in a speech he gave before the believers in Acts chapter 1. If you would turn there with me. Acts chapter 1, in verses 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Again, the use of the Old Testament scriptures by the New Testament authors, including their recording of Jesus' own words to show what was already written concerning the Messiah is very evident. This is why Jesus made a point of opening the Scriptures, not only to the unbelieving Pharisees, but to the confused disciples. Opening the Scriptures is important. The Word of God is consistent and true and authoritative and self-authenticating and gives us understanding as we read it and meditate on it. Judas was numbered among them and, and had his share in the ministry of Christ, but he was a wicked, unbelieving man. Peter makes it clear that David's writing in the Psalms was about Judas. He actually names him as the one Judas is writing about. Peter also makes a strong point here for the inspiration of Scripture when he points out that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David to write these things about Judas. Had the men on the road to Emmaus understood God's plan was not thwarted, 
by Judas betraying Jesus, but instead advanced by it, confusion would have been replaced by trust and hope. And how important is it for you and I to know what is written so that we don't have to be confused and not have hope? And the second point I want to look at today is that his body was prepared for death. His body was prepared for death. Not the church, which is referred to as the body of Christ, but the physical body of Christ when he came and dwelt among men. Yes, we know about this, and we know it was prophesied in the Old Testament, but I want us to consider why Jesus had a body. This fact is so specifically tied to most of what we know and believe about Christ. Without his physical body, not one person would ever be saved. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 40. Psalm chapter 40. In verses 6 through 8, it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. In Psalm 40, we see language that is used in other places in Scripture because of the sinful, lifeless, hypocritical worship that God's people offered him. They would often go through the motions of obedience to God and bringing sacrifices and offerings to him, but it was just that, going through the motions. They had no heart of devotion or worship motivating their offerings. They did not fear God. God wants obedience from the heart. David is acknowledging this fact that, that God does not want empty sacrifice, but obedience. When he says, you have given me an open ear, he means obedience. He means a willingness to not just hear, but to listen and obey. The problem was all the multiplied sacrifices day after day and year after year were insufficient. They couldn't take away sin because they were merely outward acts by people whose hearts were far from God and whose deeds were sinful. And without obedience from the heart and hearts that are inclined to the Lord, the sacrifices he has commanded are merely noise. They're abominations to God. The Lord spoke through the prophet Amos and said, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will look upon them, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. 
in Amos 5, 21, 23. Why? Because the people were worshiping idols. And at the same time, going through the motions of sacrificing to God. They were walking in sinfulness without repentance, and their worship became a useless stench in God's nostrils. And this is what Samuel meant when he said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And so the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul. Something else was needed. Something else had to happen in order for sin to truly be forgiven. Of course, we know that something is actually a someone. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And one of the ways in which the Psalms are written is is that the psalmist's writing of events in his own life that are allusions to a future truth to be more perfectly revealed in the life of Christ. In the case of Psalm 40, it is David writing of a greater David to come, Christ Jesus. This may not look like prophecy in the sense we normally think, but it is prophetic. The New Testament scripture often reveals what was truly meant by an Old Testament writer and what he said, even if the writer didn't know it at the time. You may be asking yourself what Psalm 40 has to do with Christ having a body. So I want to draw your attention to the New Testament. Now, if you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, where we see the connection when the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40. Hebrews chapter 10. Here he makes clear that Christ is the true focus of that passage because he applies the language not only to Christ as the remedy for the problem, but his body as the means. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And here we see the importance of the incarnation of Christ in that the problem of man is still the same. What man offers to God under the old covenant sacrificial system is inadequate, insufficient, and incapable of dealing with sin. And that word consequently at the beginning of verse 5 is important because it's tying these statements about the body of Christ to what had just been said in the previous verses, where we learn that all the sacrifices are just a shadow of what is to come in Christ. Christ is the substance. He is the reality, specifically in his body. In Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, if you're still there, these are the preceding verses. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are 
continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, the Father prepared for him a body. Why? Because he would have to die. And this verse about a body prepared for him, as in Psalm 40, speaks of the obedience of Christ to the Father through his death. You didn't desire empty sacrifice with no obedience. You take no pleasure in these rituals, so you have given me a body to take care of the problem once for all. And Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He, Jesus, delights to do the will of the Father. It's like food to him. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Father's work is done in the Son's body in every respect. Jesus is the one who can offer the true sacrifice because he is the only unblemished Lamb of God who offers not some beast, but himself in his body prepared for death. He is unblemished because he is unstained by a sin nature and because he lived a sinless life in our place due to our inability. That Messiah, the Christ, would have a body is significant on many levels. We know about the virgin birth of Christ and about the death and resurrection of Christ. But without a body prepared for him by the Father, we would be lost, and so many prophecies and promises made and fulfilled would not have been. Jesus needed a body to be born of a virgin. He needed a body to live a sinless life, a body to be betrayed in, a body to be abused by men, a body to be crucified by men, a body to offer as the perfect sacrifice, a body to take the wrath of God in your place, a body to die in, a body to be buried in, a body to be resurrected in, a body to ascend into heaven in, and a body to return in on his great and glorious day to come. Let's not be foolish and slow of heart to understand this truth from all of Scripture that Jesus had to have a body. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and then verse 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that he made propitiation for the sins of the people means that the wrath of God was satisfied in the son's death. Scripture is clear. He had to be made like us. He had to. No other way to accomplish salvation. Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It had to be the blood shed from the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice offered with a pure and obedient heart to the Father. He, being God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. All because he had a body prepared for him. What an amazing thing that Jesus had a body prepared for him. If you're here today and have had your sins forgiven through repentance and faith in him, it is because he had a body. And that body was broken for you by God's design. And it pleased God to crush his son for you. If anyone denies the incarnation of Christ, they have denied everything about Christ. And there is no hope for them in this life or the next. The men on the road to Emmaus witnessed all the things involving the body of Christ. And they wrongly concluded it was all bad. That it all meant he must not have been Messiah. Why? Because they did not understand what had been written concerning him in all the scriptures. If they had, they would have interpreted every blow Jesus took every slash of the whip on his back, every mocking voice crying out, crucify him, his very words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If they had known and understood what was written concerning Christ in all the scriptures, they would have been left with one response. Truly, this is the Messiah, the one who was and is and is to come. Instead of doubt, assurance. Instead of confusion, clarity. And instead of fear, worship. Not knowing what is written concerning Christ in all of Scripture leads to confusion about life and who Christ is and what he's done for us. Not understanding what was written about what Christ had to do to atone for sin caused Peter to try and stop him from going to the cross. In Matthew 16, 21 through 23,
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We needed Christ to go to the cross. Why must Jesus go? Because the Father prepared a body for him to die in. Jesus said he must suffer, he must die, he must be raised. Peter became as Satan because he had a mind set on earthly things. Things that man finds to be right. We don't want to find ourselves in that position. We don't want to be shaken like the men on the road to Emmaus because they had no knowledge. Do you know what is written concerning Jesus in the Scriptures? Do you know today the most significant truth of all, that he was betrayed and his life was laid down so your sins could be washed away? That God's plan of salvation for you is that you turn your life over to him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There's no greater truth that we find written about Christ in the Scriptures than the truth that he took our place on the cross and the truth about Christ that by repenting, turning from our sin and putting our trust in his sinless life, in his death, in his resurrection, our sins can be forgiven, washed away. What a great truth. So, you find yourself shaken you find yourself confused about Christ, open the Scriptures. Don't be foolish. Don't be slow of heart to believe all that has been written about Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. I encourage you today, if you don't know Christ, come talk to myself or one of the other elders. And let us share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. Don't leave here today in a state of confusion. Don't leave her today wanting to hold on to your sin. Don't be foolish. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for what is written about Christ, not only in the Psalms, but all throughout the Scriptures. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you prepared a body for him. Let us not take that lightly. Let us not blow it off as just a fact we know. Let us ponder it. Think deeply about it what it meant 
for Christ, who is eternally God, to humble himself, to take on flesh, be among us sinful, wretched people, to have that body broken, his blood spilled for his enemies. Pray, Father, today, if there is a single heart here that has not been convicted of their sin, that you would do so even now. Lord, let us turn from our sin. You offer salvation through the body of Christ. Thank you. Thank you for your power. Lord, his body did not remain in the grave. He is risen. And we look forward, Lord, not just to celebrating that next week, but every single day as we think about our Savior, how he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as children. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.